Welcome to Conversations with Owens Community College President, Dr. Dion D. Somerville. Welcome to the seventh episode of the Conversations podcast. I'm Dr. Dion D. Somerville. Thank you for listening today. Whether this is your first time with us or whether you're a longtime follower, we're so happy you're joining us as we explore the issues and meet the people who are important to Northwest Ohio and to Owens Community College. Please enjoy our previous episodes and subscribe to Conversations to join us for future episodes. Today, I am so excited to welcome Sheriff Mark Vasilishan. Mark has been the Sheriff of Wood County since 2005 and is a proud alum of Owens Community College, and we're happy to have him with us today. Sheriff Vasilishan is a lifelong resident of Wood County. He graduated from Rossford High School in 1979 and received a Bachelor of Arts degree from Hillsdale College in 1983. He is a proud graduate of the Owens Community College Police Academy, and he's also a graduate of the Police Executive Leadership College and the National Sheriff's Institute. He and his wife, Jenna, are proud parents of twins, James and Catherine, and Sheriff Vasilishan serves on the Board of Directors and is a member of the Executive Committee of the National Sheriff's Association and serves on several of its national committees. He also represents the National Sheriff's Association on the Criminal Intelligence Coordinating Council, and Sheriff Vasilishan was the president of the Buckeye State Sheriff's Association in 2017 and serves on several of its state committees. He is also extensively involved in the community and is a lifelong member of St. Michael's Byzantine Catholic Church, where he serves as a trustee and is an active member of Rotary and Kiwanis. Sheriff Vasilishan is the recipient of multiple awards and certificates of appreciation, including the ASIS Keith Dressel Officer of the Year Award, the Rossford School District Alumni Award of Distinction, and the Bowling Green Chamber of Commerce Zeus Award, which he received just last year. Sheriff Vasilishan is a dear friend to Owens Community College, and we are very proud to list him among our alumni, and we're grateful that he agreed to join us today for this conversation. Hello, Sheriff Vasilishan. Thank you so much for being our guest today. Good morning, Sheriff Vasilishan. Good morning. It's such a pleasure to have you here on our podcast, and I've been looking forward to talking to you for some time. As many people may know, you're an Owens alum and you're proud sheriff of Wood County. But one of the ways we like to start all of our podcasts is by asking people, how did they know that they needed education beyond high school? And so do you mind sharing your story with us? Well, and it's kind of a long story because it goes back generations. My father's parents were educated. My father's father was a superintendent of schools for an entire region like a state. His mother was a school teacher, actually was his school teacher, and my father went through uh, the equivalent of college and then medical school at Vienna, which was one of the top medical schools in the world, and he immigrated to this country in 1948, and he lost absolutely everything. I literally have a trunk in my basement that were all of his possessions in this little trunk, and he, throughout his life, told us, you have to be educated, you have to go to college, no one can ever take your education away, no matter what happens to you you'll always have your education. And then I go to my mother's side of the family. Her parents immigrated here during the Industrial Revolution, and they started out in Ford City, Pennsylvania, in a glass factory. And Ross Ford started the glass factory here in Rossford, and uh, they needed workers here. So they moved from Pennsylvania to Rossford and started a life there. And they valued education and saved money. They worked in the factory and put money aside for their four children to be able to go to college. Now, the one son, there were three girls and a boy, he chose not to go to college, so they actually gave him 
him some money to start a business that he, for years, had always had like a side business, and he worked at the factory. But my mother went to Bowling Green State University along with her sisters, and they got degrees and were teachers. They valued education. So it was both sides of the family. Growing up, my parents always said, we don't care what you do for a living, but you have to be educated. You have to do well in school, and you have to go to college. So that's how I was raised. Like I mentioned earlier, three out of the four children in my family did well. My older two sisters are both doctors. One's a medical surgeon. The other one's a clinical psychologist. My brother, an attorney. And then there's me. So Who they, did uh, well as well. Well, I did okay. I did okay. <laughs> but they, uh, they had great degrees and did super well in school, and I was lucky to, to be average in school. So it, uh, well, I was not a standout. Well, you know, we need everyone. And one of the things that I love about being at Owens is we talk about inclusivity, meaning everyone who wants or needs some additional training or education to move further in life. And so we're very embracive of your law enforcement background. You know, we have law enforcement here as well. You talked about when your parents immigrated to the United States. Where from? From the Ukraine. So my my father came over in 1948, and my mother's parents came over in the 1920s before she was born. And uh, different parts of the country, but uh, I actually spoke Ukrainian before I spoke English. My father wanted to keep the Ukrainian culture Mm -hmm. and our heritage, yet... We, you know, we were Americans. This, you know, my father always said, "This is the best country in the world." But he wanted to make sure that we remembered where we came from. And actually, the church I still attend in Rossford, uh, there's a Ukrainian Catholic church there. And growing up, the liturgy was actually in Ukrainian, and that helped because some of the people that came over didn't speak English or mm-hmm. spoke broke, spoke very broken English. So mm-hmm. that was, the community was very, very important. That's amazing. Is it still there? It is still there. I'm still very active in the church. It's Mm -hmm. on Walnut Street in Rossford. So it's a very small church. That's awesome. Well, one of the reasons that we started this podcast, we talked about how with me being relatively new and talking to people in the community, when they find out you're from Owens, they talk about whatever their connection is with Owens. And I was having lunch with one of our community leaders downtown and the server said, oh, you guys from the bank, I'm running out of pens. And I said, well, I'm not from the bank. But of course, I can give you a pen. And of course, it was an Owens pen. And um, she says, Owens, my daughters went there. And I'm like, really? Well, what program? And it was such a similar story. She immigrated from Germany. And when her daughters were in school, her guidance counselors actually told her two daughters, don't waste your time going to college. And the mother said, I didn't have this opportunity you're going to go. And in similar path, one of her daughters is a physician, the other one is a physicist. And so it's just amazing the value that families place on higher education and how meaningful that is and how that really transcends into what the student does. I can understand and appreciate firsthand the impact that family has on higher education. Definitely. Definitely. Now, Ukraine is going through some going through some very difficult right times now. Yes, yes and so can you talk a little bit about what that means to you and your family I'm, I'm assuming you still have relatives in the in Ukraine distant cousins like fourth cousins uh, actually my oldest sister before the war kept in touch with some of the cousins and unfortunately since the war broke out have lost contact. But it's it's sad because uh, you, you, Ukraine has always wanted to be independent, but just, you know, starting, well, going through history, uh, and in World War II, there was a time when Germany came and took it over and pilfered the country, and then the Russia came in and, and, and pilfered the country, and they uh, it was exciting when they became an independent country, and of course they struggled because they had always been under 
uh, part of the Soviet Union at one time. So it was uh, hard for the country to become independent and really has been working toward democracy and wanting democracy, which is which is a wonderful thing. So it was kind of heartbreaking when uh, Putin invaded Ukraine. But what's impressive is the love of the country that they're fighting for their homeland. And I think the whole world underestimated how badly the Ukrainians were going to fight for their country. And it, there's a big difference between invading a country and maybe the psychology of those soldiers versus the ones that are there defending their homes and their culture and their, their communities. So we, we, when it comes to defending our land, we really get strong on that. And, and it was beautiful to see how the Ukrainians stepped up and, and uh, are still fighting very hard and very well. And, and uh, again, I think we learned a lot about the Russian army that everybody was so terrified of, of how big and powerful, and, and maybe it wasn't as, maybe the corruption and things they had in their, in their army have affected how, uh, how they're fighting. So it, uh, and, and there were some great inroads the other day in Ukraine, so we'll see what happens. I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic that, uh, that Ukraine will be able to survive as an independent country. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's an amazing story, and it's amazing to look at the global response. And you had mentioned the Ukrainian church here, but throughout Northwest Ohio, really the United States and the world over, how there's such a solidarity, um, really for for wanting peace and really wanting people to live kind of that self-actualized existence. You know, people really should be able to live on their own terms, whatever that is. And it's beautiful to go around and see Ukrainian flags in people's yards that may not even be Ukrainian, but they have Ukrainian flags in their yard showing support of that independent little country that's kind of a David and Goliath mm-hmm. uh, situation for a lot of people. So it's really nice to see as I go places, wow, there's another flag over there. Someone has the flag on their car. Mm-hmm. So it's, uh, it's beautiful to see that. Absolutely. You talked a little bit about the value of higher education and what you grew up with. What made you want to go into law enforcement? Great question. When I was in junior high school, I got a little job. I'm sure, it wasn't for the money because it didn't pay much. Was to uh, I used to pop popcorn for the events going on at Rossford School. So if you went to a event at Rossford Schools between my seventh grade and twelfth grade, and you ate popcorn, I probably popped that popcorn. <laughs> so it's <laughs> so if anyone broke any teeth during that time, don't call me. But other than that, it was. Uh, so by doing that, I was always there early, and I was one of the last to leave, as were the then police chief, Matt Vidra, and Sergeant Ron Dilsky. Of course, they knew my family, a small town. They would oftentimes, and I'd give them popcorn. I'd give them a, you know, a bag of popcorn while they were patrolling and, and keeping us safe. So they would oftentimes give me a ride home, whether it was after a football game, basketball game. And I loved it if on the drive home they got a call. And it's like, wow, I get to go on a call. <laughs> so they saw my interest. And as I, even starting in junior high and Certainly all through high school, all through college, if I was in college, come home for a weekend, I would ride with the Rossford officers. I just really enjoyed doing that. I never thought well, I would necessarily make a career of it, but I, I just enjoyed what they did and enjoyed how they interacted with the people and, and how people solve their problems. So after I graduated college and I started my real estate business, a very good friend of mine was then the chief in Rossford because Matt Vida retired, so Matt Brickton became the chief. And he convinced me, he goes, you really like this. You ought to just go to the academy and see where it leads you. And even if you're just a part-time officer somewhere, you can kind of get your feet going. And of course, the only choice really was Owens. Uh, there were a couple. There was an academy in Toledo, and there was some others. But the location of, of Owens is ideal, especially coming from Rossford. You're right next to Rossford. Geographically, it's it's a great location. And most of my rental properties were in Toledo. So if I was coming from those, it was very quick to just uh, hop over and uh, quickly come to Owens. And I really uh, enjoyed the interaction and to this day, I still communicate with some of my classmates that were in the, in the academy class. Now, I went to the night class. They used to have, an, I think they still offer, a part-time academy where we, it went something to the effect of like 5 p.m. to 9 p.m. 
or might have been 5 to 9.30, and then one or two Saturdays a month to get all our hours in that we needed to get. But it was great. I could do my uh, rental stuff during the day and go to class in the uh, in the evenings, and it worked It worked out great. The, it was an old building that I was in. I, I think it was an addition to one of the barracks or something that we were, uh, that we were in. So it's, uh, the campus is certainly much more beautiful and modern, and, but great memories of, of Owens, and most of the, many of the instructors were Toledo police officers that, uh, that taught, I know, in their academy. Toledo still has their academy here. So they taught in the academy, and then they also did the uh, open role academy, I guess they called it at the time. Yeah, that's fantastic. You alluded to the facility, the Center for Emergency Preparedness, and everything that goes on there. And you have been not only an alum of Owens, but you've been very involved in Owens. You were on our Alumni Association Board, served on advisory committees for a Center of Emergency Preparedness, as well as corrections and criminal justice. Can you talk a little bit about why it's important for you? We very much value your input, your service, because we believe that our students are benefited and the community is benefited if they have input from people who are working in the field. That's part of how we stay relevant. But what is it that makes you want to be involved and engaged in Owens? Well, I want Owens to succeed because the best better Owens does, the better we're going to be able to recruit people and the better trained the people we hire are going to be. So it's important for me to be involved. Number one, give back to the community by being involved on different committees and boards because I serve on, on quite a few including the the several here at Owens. But I also, we recruit from here, and we've hired many other graduates from Owens. So the more I can be involved on, hey, these are the core values that we have, and this is what we look for when we hire people or what we want our deputies to to portray, I think it helps with the students to hear that, and it also for the instructors to hear, yeah, that honesty and integrity, for example, are really core values that we have to make sure that our students understand that and live that. So I'm happy to give back. And I learn also. I learn from the students. I learned from the instructors. I probably gain as much or more than uh, than the students do just from the interaction with the students. And Mr. Wiederman, who uh, does the Day Academy for years, he always has me come on opening day, first day of class, 7 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> I, he, he has me come in and just give a little pep talk to the uh, to the students and let them know, you know what we're looking for, what uh, what's important to us, and why it's important for them to pay attention and and follow the rules and, and to get through the uh, through the academy. So I, I really enjoy doing that. It's uh, it's kind of become a tradition for me to come in and, and talk to the to the class on the first day. That's fantastic. Now I would imagine that, that there's probably a lot of things that you share with them on their first day, but can you talk a little bit about how is being a sheriff being different from other roles in law enforcement? It is it is very different uh, in a couple ways. The, the, probably the biggest difference, and this is something that I, I, every time I talk to a Rotary Club or a Qantas or any group, and I love talking about the Office of Sheriff, we are the only country in the world, the only country in the world that elects the chief law enforcement officer. So I work directly for the 132,700 people live in Wood County. They are my boss. You live in Wood County. You are one of my bosses. So it's very important for me to interact with my bosses as much as possible. It forces me to get out in the community. And that's part of, you know, whether it's interacting here at Owens or when I go to a cookout or I go to a, to a fundraiser or a fair or a festival, I'm interacting with the community to find out what are your issues? What are your concerns? What's on your mind? What do you want us to do differently? What would help you feel safer, etc. Where the rest of law enforcement works for for someone else. They work for the mayor. They work for a trustee. They work on the state level where I'd answer to the people. And and I have a pass-fail test every four years. Uh, I'll be on the ballot again in 2024. And if I pass that test, I get to do another four years. And I love the fact that it forces me to make sure that 
I'm able to tell people, here's what we're doing. Here's the direction we're going in. And if people like the direction, they like the law enforcement and what we're doing in Wood County, then I get another four-year contract. If they're not happy with uh, the direction law enforcement's going, then I'm out the door. And I take that very, very seriously. And that's why I think it's important for me to be visible and accessible all the time. I really pride myself on being visible and accessible. And I've been had police chiefs joke about it. You know, on a Sunday afternoon, I'm at some event, and I, I had one chief with his wife on a bicycle saying, ah, that's the difference between a sheriff and a police chief. I'm, you know, I don't have to be at these things. And off he pedals. Uh, <laughs> and he's right. He doesn't have to be at those things. He just has to make the mayor happy. Uh, I have uh, my constituents that I have to make sure that they're uh, comfortable with, with the direction we're going in. So it's so that's part of what's very different. The other part of sheriff that's very different, a lot of our duties are different. Yes, we I, my primary thing is to preserve the peace. Uh, that's that's the under Section 31107 in the High Vice Code, the very first thing it says, preserve the peace. And I'm responsible for that throughout the county, whether someone has a police department or doesn't have a police department, the cities, townships, it doesn't matter. Peace has to be preserved. Now, in the cities or areas that have their own police department, that function is there. But there have been times where there's a problem that I may call that chief and say, hey, I'm getting worried about this issue and usually the chief takes care of it. If not, they've sometimes asked me to do it. So I'm a resource for a lot of the police chiefs. So I have that responsibility for all 620 square miles of Wood County. But I also am responsible for the county 911 system. I also am responsible for the jail, uh, which is basically an all-inclusive resort with 120 people that don't want to be there. And all their <laughs> medical care and, and uh, all their hygiene, everything that they need to, to be in this environment. Some of them are there maybe for six hours. Some of them are there for two years. Uh, we have that going on. Uh, I also issue concealed carry weapon permits. I register sex offenders, arsonists, violent offenders. We also do all the service of all the temporary protection orders, civil protection orders, all the paperwork for common police court. I'm responsible for the courthouse complex, uh, keeping preserving the peace in that facility. And the one thing that I do where everyone says that I'm always spot on and exactly right, it's the only part of my job where people say, wow, he's always right, and that's when I do the different snow emergency levels. Everybody <laughs> always agrees on the level I'm on and says, you know, he is spot on. And I'm, of course, choking. Uh, one, of my, one of my best friends says, no matter what level I'm at, I'm off by one. He says, if you're a two, always. you ought to be a three. If you're a three, you ought to be a two. So he's exactly right. An oh, and do they ever express it, especially if you go on Facebook, you will have all kinds of descriptions of me. And my intelligence and body parts will be well described on, uh, on Facebook when we're doing the different, uh, different levels. Uh, so that's one of the fun things I get to do. But it's very challenging. There's so much variety. One day I'm working on our radio system. The next day, for example, our jail expansion. Right now it's a $26 million expansion because of mental health issues that we're having in the jail and detoxing of people because of the uh, drug overdoses, that it's not like the drunk that would get arrested at 2 o'clock in the morning and he's sobered up by you know 7, 8 o'clock in the morning. He may have a headache, but he's pretty much over it. Where people that are coming down off of uh, fentanyl, oxycotton, they may be three, four days that they're going through a serious detox, and uh, we really have to monitor them carefully because bad things can happen depending on how it is in their system. And unfortunately, they're not detoxing in a hospital, they're detoxing in the jail. So we have nurses there 24 hours a day that help us with doing that. But the biggest issue, uh, 85% of the jails in our country are run by sheriffs. We have sheriffs across the country, virtually everywhere. Sheriffs are the number one providers of mental health care in our country. Wow. So make that correlation. Why is that? Because our jails are mental hospitals. Unfortunately, my deputies did not sign up to work in a mental hospital. Uh, it's a disservice to them. And equally important, it is a disservice 
to the people suffering from mental illness. They are in a jail, not in a mental hospital. I have people that are pink slipped, that the professionals are saying, this person needs to go to a mental hospital. We call the mental hospital and they're like, we don't have any beds. You're gonna have to wait. So we have someone that may wait three, six, nine weeks to get into a facility. And I like to give the analogy that if I have someone in the jail that's having a medical condition and they need to go to a medical hospital, we've got them there right now. If we need to, we're gonna call an ambulance and they're gonna go to that hospital to get treated. But in our country, we have made mental health issue a secondary or third level, third tier, unimportant treatment, and certainly don't treat it as an emergency like we do with our physical side. Yes, someone having a heart attack may die if they don't get that immediate treatment, but you're also going to have someone that may die because of the mental health situation that they're in. So that's my biggest frustration as sheriff is the lack of medical beds and mental health treatment, not only for my inmates, but also when we look around society, when we have bad things happen, I don't care which situation you go to, we can, we can go back decades, whether it's you know mass shootings, or other things that happen, mass killings, that the experts afterwards go, wow, look at all the warning signs on Johnny. Of course he did this because look at how he acted in school and look how he acted at home and his parents were warning everyone. Why don't we as a society do a better job of finding Johnny before he hurts someone else and get him the help that he needs so that he can be a productive member of society instead of going out there and acting out and killing people. And that's really a huge frustration that I have, that uh, we have dropped the ball on mental health, recognizing mental health, and then getting the people the help they need with mental health. And I'll, I'll tell you one story that uh, is, is probably really is the capstone of how you really can explain this, the seriousness of the situation. We had an inmate that was extremely difficult for our deputies to deal with, that he was constantly trying to kill himself. And we had him in special suicide gowns. We have a protocol for that. He would still try, even with a suicide gown, to kill himself, so we had to put special mitts on. And because of the way the mitts were to keep the circulation good in his hands, we had to take the mitts off like every 20 minutes. And he was awake. He was so psychotic, 23 out of 24 hours a day, he was awake. So every 20 minutes, they're changing these out, constantly trying to bite, kick, throwing his feces at the deputies, etc. We finally had a mental health hospital bed available for him. We took him to the mental hospital on a Friday. I get a call on Saturday morning from the jail saying, hey, the mental hospital called up and said, this person is so psychotic and so out of control, they can't handle him. They want to bring him back to the jail because it's too much for them. This is a mental hospital saying this person is too psychotic for us. That's like a medical hospital saying, you know, this patient is so sick, we can't handle it. We want him to go back to the jail so you guys can treat him because he's too sick for us. So fortunately, I got a hold of our Adamus board director and he said, no, 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 we're paying for beds. We will find a location and he found a hospital in Cleveland that could take him. So then we transported, not our obligation, but we did the right thing. We drove to the mental hospital that was local, drove him to the hospital in Cleveland so he could get the treatment he needed. But their first response was, I'll put him back in jail. It's okay that this person that is totally psychotic, totally in a major mental health crisis, it's okay that he's in jail. And that's wrong. Well, it's not right for the person because that means they're not getting necessarily the treatment they need. It's not fair to the law enforcement professionals who you know, I appreciate that law enforcement has changed and there's a lot more that has to be taken into consideration. But when you have professionals who have gone to school to treat people who are having mental health issues, it makes sense that the citizens are with the people who are most trained to help with what Absolutely. their Absolutely. And they can give are. drugs to those patients that we can't give mm-hmm. in the jail. Certainly, we're not going to have the psychotropic uh, drugs that right. uh, they can give in the mental hospital that we certainly cannot administer mm-hmm. in, a, in a jail. Mm-hmm.
early on, I mean, we, we talked about the mental health piece, and you talked about it really for the citizens, but then there's also a piece for the officers involved. And I was watching a special the other day about 9-11, and it was a lot of the first responders being able to talk about what they went through. How has mental health and the importance of mental health changed for first responders? I think the biggest one is that the stigma is going away. It's not gone, but the stigma of someone going for mental health help to talk to a counselor, to talk to someone, is going away. And I think that is probably the best thing that's happened in law enforcement. Because when I first started, no one would ever admit that they were talking to a therapist or a psychologist or getting any type of, hey, I just need to talk to someone about that last call. You know, going to that fatal crash with that baby in the back seat. I'm having nightmares. It's bothering me. People wouldn't talk about it. They Maybe they would drink or they would do other self-medications to deal with it. Today, we require that our deputies talk to someone when they're in a traumatic situation, whether it's a fatal crash where a child was killed or a situation that is bothering them. We'll even pay for them to go while they're on the clock, or we'll have someone come to the office and talk with them and then decide whether, you know, together they decide whether they want to continue that. So the stigma really has gone away because there are some that even say, hey, I need to talk to someone. And we actually have some volunteer pastors that hang out in the office and we'll sometimes call them and say, boy, the dispatchers really had a rough call because we handle 92% of all the 911 calls are cellular or wireless and we get all those. So, and they're EMD certified. So they're actually, we're the only EMD certified dispatchers in the county. So they talk people through what to do. It's emergency medical dispatch is what EMD stands for. Sorry. I, I oh, hate acronyms okay. and I don't like using them because <laughs> acronyms mean different things in different fields. So emergency medical dispatchers, and they are trained that if someone is bleeding, someone's not breathing, someone's having a heart attack, they talk people through. And they've had some beautiful saves. We had a stretch where we had like three babies that had stopped breathing in different parts of the county, and they saved all three. And then there was a fourth one they didn't save. And of course, they're like, did I do something wrong? Did I not talk them through properly? So we were able to call the pastor and say, hey, would you come in and just hang out with that shift? They're a little upset. And then he talks to him, and he may even encourage, say, you know what? You do have EAP, Employee Assistance Program, to take advantage of that's paid for by the county. Why don't you go talk to someone? Or he may say, yeah, I think they're okay. Sometimes that pastor has been not to certainly tell me and it's confidential, but he's going to be able to say, yeah, I think they're going to be okay, or you know they need some more attention. That's really has been a change that when I first started, that never would have happened. We would not have had either the pastor there or someone encouraging. You had a rough call. You need to go talk to someone. That would have been, oh, come on, tough it up. You, know, you, gotta, you, you can handle this. That's been a huge change in, in law enforcement. It goes back to the whole all change isn't bad. And one of the other things that I remember hearing a lot about in the last few years is a conversation about community policing. And when you were talking about what you loved about being a sheriff, to a layperson, it sounds a lot like community policing, oh, it is. is it? Yes, it is. And that's saying that... Uh, uh, when I hire new deputies, I'm not looking for the big tough guy that can go into a bar fight. I'm looking for the person that is a servant, that is uh, compassionate and passionate about what they're doing and not afraid to get out in the community and talk to people. The vehicle is a barrier. When I'm in a town, I always have my window open. A, you can hear things, but also if someone's calling out, I'm going to be able to hear them better when my window's open. And I encourage my deputies, stop and talk to people. You see someone out in their yard this time of year, people will be raking leaves soon. You see someone out raking leaves, stop. Hey, how are things going? Any issues, concerns? We 
contract with different communities for policing, so like the, the village of Grand Rapids and some of the other towns. Park your car. Walk up and down the street. Talk to the business owners. Talk to the community. Stop uh, when you go through a park and you see children playing basketball. Get out and shoot a couple hoops. And my deputies do that. And it's that connection we have with the community. The more things we do, the more interaction, positive interactions we have with the community, we build that community cash. So that when something bad happens, the community goes, now they're human beings. Yes, we make mistakes. No question about that. But as every human does. As every human does. But the more positive interaction we have with people, they get to know the deputies. They go, oh, I know that guy. Uh, or I know that girl. We, we, we have some great female deputies. That's the other big change that we've had are the number of females that have gone into law enforcement. And they are good. Talk about community interactions and dealing with the public. They do a great job. You know, women, I think, naturally tend to be very good communicators oftentimes. And that's even some of the studies they've done on the difference between male and female law enforcement, that the female law enforcements tend to naturally be a little bit better at de-escalation than oftentimes the males are. So uh, we really work hard on the de-escalation, whether it's in the jail environment, whether it's on the dispatchers on the phone, or certainly the deputy on the street. How do we de-escalate the situation? Because many cases, you can escalate. If you want to get into a fight with someone, I can say the right things to get someone to punch me, or can I say the right lot, things? And I don't want to get punched. Yes. <laughs> and, and I've always been, well, I'm not the biggest guy. I'm not the best fighter. My thing has always been, I'm going to use my mouth to get out of a fight. I don't want to fight people. I want to de-escalate that situation. So I'm looking for people that are servants, passionate about what they're doing, and are good communicators that can de-escalate. And part of that de-escalation, or part of that communicating, excuse me, is being able to interact, whether it's a small child or a senior citizen, and taking the time to talk to those people. Just interacting a little bit it goes miles. And I tell my deputies, too, I don't want you just being a report taker. Someone has a smash mailbox. They could do that over the phone. I, I want someone that goes there, that cares, that looks it over. Is there any evidence there? Did a neighbor see something? Talk to people, and you're building relationships with the community. Very important. And I think that's something that we've lost in a lot of the law enforcement, and certainly in the urban areas. They don't have the positive interactions with the community. What are they seeing in the big cities? All they're seeing is a police coming and handcuffing someone and taking them away. And because because their staffing's cut short, they don't have the extra people or the time to go and just talk to people and interact and have positive interactions. So you get an us-against-them mentality on both sides of the table when that's all you're doing. Well, during the part of the pandemic, a lot of that has changed as people stayed more to themselves. But also, I wonder how much technology has changed that as well, that people sometimes choose to not want to interact. And so how has technology changed law enforcement and what it is you do? A lot. First of all, uh, the calls that we get on people threatening someone on Facebook or someone online shared a picture that they're upset that was shared. So we have that world of crime that is taking place now that never existed before people were online all the time. And it's amazing the complaints we get on threats through their devices. The other thing that has changed is when I was uh, younger, it was a big deal to get a driver's license. And you look forward to that freedom point when you were 16 years old to get the license and wow, I can go places. I'm looking at the generation of those probably 30 and under that have grown up with smartphones and chat groups and Snapchat and Twitter and all the other things they're doing that they're, they're getting their connection through their phone with their friends instead of 
driving somewhere and getting together with their friends. And my twins are now 23 years old. And I remember there were times when they were in high school, it'd be a Friday night and they're both at home like, well, aren't you guys going to your friend's house? No, we're all, we're, we're in a group Snapchat. I mean, we're, we're, we're fine. And that never certainly was an option when I was growing up that you would do that. And they, they seem to be content with that. So I'm surprised at the number of young people who are turning 16 years old going, I, I don't want a driver's license. I don't, I don't need it. Uh, so that, that's interesting because I sure needed my driver's license when I was 16. I'm not sure why, but by golly, I needed you that. Had to, had, had to have it. <laughs> and that was always the 16th birthday present is you went and got your temporary driver's permit on your birthday. That was, mm-hmm. that was in our family. That was a big deal. So technology has been wonderful, though, because we use technology to help us solve crimes. And that's something that is a game changer. There are, for example, uh, Toledo has, and we've accessed uh, the license plate readers where we'll have a car. That, uh, where, where is that car going? Where is it from? Also pinpointing where it's at GPS that are on different cars that maybe the person didn't know that there's uh, certain car companies that have GPS if you have OnStar and different uh, different features like that that we can subpoena and find out, hey, you know what? Your car was at this location. You maybe didn't you know, assault this person, but by golly, your car was there at 3 o'clock in the morning. And we've done the same with cell phones that we've been able to pin. Uh, we had someone that was adamant that he did not assault someone at an event in the county. And we were able to subpoena his cell phone records. Well, his cell phone came all the way. I think he was from Illinois. On that day and time, his cell phone was where the assault took place. So those are things that pretty much say, yeah, okay, I did do that. It's showing that. So yes, there's a lot of tracking, a lot of information out there, tremendous amount of information out there. And my detectives had become very adept at all the technologies and how to get those technologies and use them in a positive way. And there are different software programs that will help us track cell phones. But again, the important thing is we want to appreciate and respect people's privacy and their personal rights to make sure that we do have those subpoenas when we're getting that information, that we can articulate to a judge, here's why I need to have John Doe's cell phone information because he is a suspect in this crime and here's why he's a suspect. The technology is a Yes, a great tool for us to use, but also it's opened up more work for us because of a tremendous amount of scams that are out there and they look so real. And actually our county does different tests on our email to send us different emails to make sure that we're not pushing on the wrong link. And there've been a couple of times where they got me where I'm looking, okay, I think I know, you know who this is. And I didn't quite look at that header close enough. And uh, they, they got me a couple of times. So even I've fallen for that. And I'm, I'm giving talks all the time on don't ever click on a link. You don't know where it came from. And certainly never ever, and I never like using the word never because it's usually not a, not the right thing to do, but you never ever give anyone information when they contact you, whether it's by phone or internet. If it's the bank calling, call the bank back. You know, you get, get the phone book out and, and, and call the number back. It's amazing the scams that are out there and how people prey on folks who might be a little more vulnerable. That I think is one of the very unfortunate things that has happened with technology. But to your point, there's so many advances that have happened. So we were talking about on campus a few days ago about how many students don't have cars anymore and how it used to be very accurate that you can count the number of cars and know roughly how many people, but that that's not the case anymore because that has changed. And so given changes with the role with, you know, society, technology, if a young person or an, or an adult, an older person is interested in law enforcement, 
and you're giving, you know, this is why you should consider being a sheriff versus every other aspect of law enforcement. What do you consider the advantages? Well, the area. My road patrol loves that we break it down into areas for them to patrol, but they have large areas that they're covering. The variety of uh, types of calls that we get, because we have some, you know, Wood County has some more urban areas, and we have certainly some very rural areas and villages in between, but also the variety of duties within the office, uh, whether you're in the civil division uh, serving papers, or you're working in the jail, or you're doing road patrol, or you're a detective, or I have deputies that are on different task forces. I have deputies at the courthouse. I even have a deputy at the Court of Appeals uh, up in Lucas County, because that's part of our responsibility to to protect that as a sheriff. So I have a deputy assigned there full-time. So the, the nice thing is the variety. If you go on a police department, you're going to be doing the policing, and maybe 25 years down the road, or you're 30 years into your career, and you still want to work more, maybe you don't want to be doing traffic crashes uh, in the wintertime in the snow or chasing people. With my deputies, they could decide, you know what, maybe I'll go work in the civil division or maybe I'll work in the jail. And the pay is the same whether you're a deputy in the jail or a deputy on the road. Same with a sergeant. Whether you're a sergeant on the road or sergeant in the, in the jail, it's the same because they're equally important to me. The jail deputy is just as important as the road deputy. And yes, there are some different perks where the road deputy, if they live in the county, get a take-home car. But the jail deputy is going to say, I'm in a climate-controlled building. You know, in the summertime, mm-hmm. it's 72 degrees. In the wintertime, it's 72 degrees. It doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't rain in here unless the sprinkler head breaks. Uh, so so there are some great advantages to doing that. So the, the variety, and I've had uh, deputies that work the road for 20, 25 years going, you know what, I want to transfer to the civil division. And then they're Monday through Friday, the weekend's off, and they're serving papers. So it's, I'm not, you know, I'm not saying it's not as dangerous because it can be, mm-hmm. but it's a different pace and, right. and they're transporting prisoners, et cetera. So the variety of things that we get involved in are very different than, than a police department would, mm-hmm. uh, would, would we get involved in. Well, and it's nice. It sounds like people have flexibility. Yes. You know, that as long as there's, you know, process openings, things of that nature, they can change and still have the same employer. Yes. Same employer, same pay, same, unless certain promotions uh, go up, but they're not going to lose pay by saying, oh, you know what, I want to go to the civil division or I want to go to the jail or I want to go to the courthouse the pay is going to be the same. And that's that's nice that they have that. Their seniority is going to carry over, their vacation time, all those things that maybe to a 21-year-old is not important. But when you get toward the tail end of your career, those things are really important. And health insurance, we've got great health insurance. We're not the highest paid uh, agency out there, certainly not. But actually, one of our deputies, because he was enticed to go to an agency that was paying quite a bit more per hour, and then he realized, well, gee, all the gas I'm going to spend going to and from work, because now he has his county car that he drives to work, but also the health insurance difference was in hundreds of dollars a month. And he's going, hmm, you know what? When I tally these things up, it's actually better for me to stay. He's relatively young. And I'm like, oh, okay. So he did his homework. And uh, again, I didn't push. People have to make up their own mind on what they want to do. We certainly love to retain people. But it's nice when occasionally they're like, you know what? It's not all about the dollar amount of that job and the job satisfaction. He loves Wood County and loves the area and loves the people. And we do have a great community here in Wood County. I think so. Yeah, Owens is proud resident of Wood County as well. Well, we're very proud to have you here and happy to have you here. It's a great asset for Wood County. Thank you so much. We believe education is important, which is something you share, and there's lots of studies that talk about correlation between educational attainment and life benefits, one of them being a reduction in crime. One of the things that you've been involved with is the Invest in Kids programs. And so can you talk a little bit about what that is and why you believe there's an important link between education and crime prevention? Oh, no question, because uh, so many people are in crime because of poverty. And if you are hungry, you're going to do whatever it takes to feed yourself and your family. And unfortunately for some people, that answer may be crime, 
to feed their family, but you can understand if they, for whatever reasons, aren't able to get a job, aren't able to hold a job, that's where education comes in to help them get a job where they can support themselves and support their families. And also education, learning how to learn and learning how to research things that maybe some of them would not get involved with some of the drugs because they're going to learn how bad it is for their bodies and addictions and how it brings themselves down and bring others down long term. You know, there are very few people that can successfully say, yeah, I've been snorting cocaine for the last 20 years and it hasn't affected me. That doesn't happen. Or the other people that think, well, I've got my heroin addiction under control. Not for the long term. That's where education comes in, that if we can educate people and they can educate themselves on the dangers of getting involved in those and the benefits of also getting a degree, whether it's here at Owens or a bachelor's degree or whatever level they go to, it opens doors. And what does it do? It opens doors to better paying jobs and better opportunities so that they don't have to resort to crime to be able to feed themselves and their families and house themselves, that they're going to be able to live the American dream, whatever that dream is to them, that they'll be able to live that because they have those opportunities because they have that education. As my father would say, they can never take that education away no matter what happens. They can't take that away from you. So it's so important to have that degree in whatever it is. And right now, the trades, wow, with Intel coming into Ohio, I was talking to a friend of mine at the uh, at the Carpenters Union, and he was just telling me about all the perks and uh, trying to attract people to, at least during the construction phase, to moved to Licking County, and they have tremendous incentives right now to get people to go there. And he said, now, if you know anyone that you know can pass a drug test, again, very important to be educated on that, that is willing to go through our process, the starting pay is very respectable, and I think it's a four-year apprenticeship or something, and you're going to be making $100,000 a year plus in those fields. And that's something that people don't realize, the great opportunities there are in having that degree, that certification, if you will, whether it's an apprenticeship or going through some of the programs you have here in Owens, which are going to be a huge step in the right direction. You have someone that's taken HVAC at Owens, they're going to be able to walk into many, many businesses and and have a great job, a very respectful job. And it's certainly, they're going to have a very, very good living wage. Absolutely. Now, we think there's so many opportunities for people be it here, be it in the trades, be it in advanced manufacturing, all the way through our transfer programs. We're thrilled that that we share the same value of education, um, knowing that it's a pathway to people having not only socioeconomic independence and mobility, but it leads to so many other meaningful life outcomes like the reduction in crime, better health outcomes, all of that is part of that. And all these things are changing, for example, robotics, but there has to be someone that makes that robot work. And when that robot breaks, so I know you have your robotics program, that takes maintenance. If that's going 24 hours a day, programs get updated and uh, troubleshooting and also going to the next level, okay, what's the next thing we can get this robot to do? So that's one of the big changes we have. We talk about technology on how technology is used in manufacturing. And there's so much more manufacturing coming to Wood County, too. That's another uh, very positive thing that's happening. So many job opportunities that we have here that, that we didn't have 10 or 20 years ago. And it's, it's exciting. It's exciting for exciting. all of us together. Yes, yes. So you're also heavily involved in the National Sheriff's Association, and we talked about mental health in other aspects of our conversation today, but that association has been very pivotal in your career, and how has it worked regarding mental health concerns? Absolutely. The National Sheriff's Association represents, I think there are 3,085 counties in our country, and some are parishes, and Louisiana calls them parishes, Mm -hmm. and I think it's like 370 sheriffs out there. Whether you're a little sheriff's office that might have, and there are some in our country that they may have five deputies, uh, to uh, Los Angeles County that has uh, 20,000 employees, Mm -hmm. or Clark County, Nevada, 
which is uh, the second or third largest sheriff's office in the country. And Miami-Dade is soon to be a sheriff's office. Uh, It's going to go back to being under the sheriff, I believe, in 2024. And that'll be, I believe, the fourth largest sheriff's office. We're all doing the same job, uh, whether we're big or small. So the nice thing with the National Sheriff's Association is we're, we're dealing with the same problems, whether we're in Los Angeles or we're in Kansas or in Wood County, Ohio. And all of us are dealing with the mental health issues in the jail. So we were approached by the leadership in Washington in the Senate. Uh, Actually, I had numerous phone calls with Senator Sherrod Brown. Our association was dealing closely with the White House and other senators. And we have been begging for money for better mental health treatment in our country Mm -hmm. and mental health beds so that we can take people that need to go to a mental hospital from jail, actually have a place we can take them. They hurt us, and in the last gun bill, there have actually been some positive changes in getting money toward mental health beds and mental health training and mental health counseling, et cetera, for people. And I'm really excited about that. That's that's a major milestone. One of the issues we also deal with, International Association is working on, and we've made headroads in recently. And again, thanks to our, our senators for being part of this. I know Sherrod Brown voted for this, and I believe Senator Portman also voted for this. And that is when someone today goes into jail, mm-hmm. and they're not guilty, you're innocent to proven guilty, they today lose all their benefits. So they lose any Social Security they have, Medicare, Medicaid, are off the table when someone's incarcerated. And that's wrong because then the county, my budget, pays for all their medical care while they're in the jail. And then when they get released from jail, they don't immediately get those benefits back. They have to reapply and they can take months to get it back. So if you have someone that gets arrested, and again, innocent until proven guilty, and let's say they go through the process, they're not found guilty and they're released, they're being punished because they're losing their benefits until they get them back. So that's a huge disservice that we're, that we're doing in one of the foundations of our country of innocent until proven guilty. We should not be punishing someone uh, by taking away those benefits. And it's costing uh, the taxpayers of Wood County every time someone loses those benefits and they come into jail because then we're paying for it instead of Medicare or Medicaid paying for those as they would if they weren't incarcerated. So that's something we've made some major inroads on. I'm really Mm -hmm. excited about that. I'm involved in our state, the Buckeye State Sheriff's Association, which helps us on a state level. The mental health issue we're dealing with is a national problem, and that's where it really is involved with us. And I go to Washington at least once or twice a year, and we're really working hard on these issues along with numerous conference calls. And that's where one of the benefits of technology, we can do a lot of Mm -hmm. these things on Zoom, which I love it because then I don't have to travel. We're really working hard on getting some of these changes in place that will ultimately help the citizens of Wood County. It really speaks to the broad nature of what some of our challenges and really what some of our solutions will be. You know, we're not isolated and into ourselves, but through state associations and national organizations, you're able to help bring solutions forward that are going to help us all. Absolutely. Deeply appreciative of that. As we get ready to close, I do have a question out of curiosity, being new to the area. You had mentioned uh, when your mother's family first immigrated, they settled in Pennsylvania, and then they came to Rossford to work in the Ross Ford Glass Factory. Correct. And so what is Ross Ford, and how is that different than Rossford? Very good. Well, it's kind of one and the same. I'm actually on the committee for the city of Rossford for their 125th anniversary, which is going to be next August. So I'm on a committee for that. Basically, you had 
the Ford family, not mm-hmm. the car family, but a different Ford family that was in the glass business. And they had Ford City in Pennsylvania had a glass factory there. And this part of the country had natural gas and it had the sand they needed and it had the rivers because they used the water to cool the glass as part of the process. So Ross Ford, and I, I'm getting this wrong, I think his wife's name Ross, and he, or anyway, it was an, a combination of the two names, mm-hmm. the last name of Ford and the first name of Ross came together, and that's how they came up with the town of Ross Ford. And they had the glass factory, and over time it became part of the Libby Owens Ford glass factory. And that's what it was known for decades in Ross Ford, Libby Owens Ford. It was originally the Ford Glass Plate Company, but then it became Libby Owens Ford. And then Pilkington bought it, which was an international company, and then Nippon Glass owns it now. But the interesting thing I learned uh, on this committee was that many, many years ago, Libby Owens Ford loaned money and actually invested in uh, the Nippon Glass Factory, which is in Japan. And now Nippon since bought the company. So it's just kind of funny how it did a 180 that yeah. your, you know, Libby Owens Ford loaned them money to get them going. And now they bought Libby Owens Ford. It's which, all full uh, circle. Yes, it full circle. And Pilkington and, and uh, Pilkington Glass, which is a British company, they always had a good relationship with Libby Owens Ford. And uh, I believe that uh, Libby Owens Ford, they still pay a royalty because of the technology that's used in how the glass is made. That's amazing. It's interesting, everything around glass. And of course, that's special to us at Owens, given that our namesake, Michael Owens, is responsible for some of the innovations in glass making. And so it goes back to how we believe that we're all part of the fabric of the community and how glass is so important to us. And if we go to the history of Rushford, if you go on Maple Street, some of the Tree Streets, Elm Street, there are the, they call them the row houses or little townhouses. Mm-hmm. Those were built by the factory for their workers. They would actually live in factory homes and mm-hmm. the factory that where my church is located and several of the churches in town, the factory gave the land for the churches, knowing that church was an important part of the community. So they donated the land and money for the people to be able to build their own churches. So Rossford had three, four, five churches, and all of them were on land donated by the factory. So you would uh, live in the factory homes, and then as you saved up money, you would then build your house in town. For years, most of the people that lived in Rossford, and I have many, you know, my grandparents, uh, aunts, uncles, that all worked in that factory, and many of them walked to work. You know, my mm-hmm. uncle walked to work in the factory. So, you know, the whistle would blow, and, and it was time to go to work. So it was... Uh, very much a community. I remember being in sixth grade and the teacher asking, uh, raise your hand if your mom or dad work at the factory. And there were 26 students in my sixth grade class. I don't know why I remember that, but 26. <laughs> there were only two of us that did not raise their hand. My father was a doctor and the other uh, student didn't raise his hand. His father worked at Master Chemical. So mm-hmm. uh, out of 26 kids in the class, 24 out of 26, mm-hmm. their parents worked at the factory. So it was That's that amazing. much of a factory town, even in the 70s, which, you know, is, is a long It's just time a little ago. bit ago. It's just a little bit just ago. Just a little bit ago. That's true. <laughs> it sometimes feels like just a little bit ago. Yes. Yes. Sheriff Ossolition, it was such a pleasure talking to you this morning. I appreciate you sharing not only about yourself personally, but about your career and your connection to Owens. I'm thrilled that you're our sheriff in the community, and I look forward to conversations to come. I really enjoy getting to know you a little bit better, and I'm honored to serve as your sheriff. I really am blessed that I'm able to do, I think, the best job in the entire world is being a sheriff, and I'm very honored that you chose me to uh, be one of your guests on your program. Thank you. Sheriff Vasilishan, thank you so much for being with us today. It's incredibly interesting to hear about the meaningful work that you and everyone in our sheriff's office does for our community. You play such a critical role, and we're grateful to you for your service. And thank you for taking the time to be with us today. And thank you to all of our listeners. Remember to subscribe and join us for future conversations. Next time, we'll be talking to Lydia Mahalik. 
She is the former mayor of Findlay, Ohio, and the current director of the Ohio Department of Development. Until then, take care.